said we'd just do a few services during the summer. We started last week, the first one looking at the, the story of Elijah. Well, we're going to continue that tonight, and we're going to begin, first of all, um, from verse, verse 1 of 1 Kings 17. So we just start from there. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years, except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kirith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. And then we're going to read from 1 Kings 19, from verse 1, just taking the, the story on a little bit. And we read that, Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Bathsheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. He came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. Thank God for his word to us. Let's just pray again together. Father, we come again and, Lord, we want to thank you for the life of Elijah, for the life of the, the great men and women of the Bible, for what their lives teach us in the ups and downs of their spiritual experience. Because we know that in our lives too, we find that, that same mix. At times we seem so close to you, then at other times you seem so far and we seem so far from you. Father, we pray that you'll help us to sift through this and to find from it truths that we can apply to our lives, that we might learn to be more and more faithful servants of you. And this we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there are certain people uh, in life, in history, who really do seem to just burst onto the scene unannounced. A relatively, relatively contemporary example is the footballer Wayne Rooney. I remember it in match of the day when it happened, age 16, but with the build of a, a middleweight boxer and looking at least 30, he made his debut for Everton against Arsenal and he scored a fantastic goal against the then England goalkeeper, D 
David Seaman. Before that day, he was relatively unknown. Since then, he's never been out of the media spotlight. Even now, in America, his first game, scored a goal, got injured. Everybody knows all about it. Well, Elijah, whose ministry, we're going to look at aspects of it, already began last week. He similarly made a dramatic entrance into the life of the people of God. Here in, in verse 1 is this previously unknown prophet appears and preaches this tremendously powerful sermon of judgment to a backslidden, idolatrous people. But then as suddenly as he appears, Elijah disappears again into obscurity. And the question I want us to attempt to, to answer this evening is why? Why at this time? Just when it seems as if the ball has begun rolling, why does Elijah here seem to, to step back? And of course, one answer could be that, well, and I think it would be an accurate answer and as far as it goes, is that Elijah stepped back here because this is what the Lord commanded him to. 17 verse 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here. And go and hide in the Kirith Ravine. And then in verse 9, go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. And of course, this is true. And in the unquestioning obedience that, that Elijah demonstrates here, he shows the essential quality that's required of any Christian who's going to fulfill God's will in their life and, and spiritually mature in the process. And that is that, that willingness to come and to go and to do whatever, whenever, wherever the Lord commands. But I'd like us to go a little bit deeper here than this tonight and ask some further questions. Like, why did God command him to go to these places at this particular time? And is there any real significance in this for each one of us here? Well, I believe that there is. And tonight what I hope to be able to do is is just draw that out for you and help you in some way to apply that to your Christian life, to Christian living today. So let's begin by looking at the Lord's first command to Elijah, to hide himself at Kirith. Leave here, it says in verse 3. Turn eastward and hide in the Kirith ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So why then... Did the Lord command this? Well, let's look first of all at the practical reasons. And first, I believe there was the sensitivity factor. For you see, the message that Elijah had had to preach of, of God's judgment, of the drought and famine and possibly death that would arise from that judgment, that had not been an easy message to preach. And Elijah, although he was a man of of great courage and faithfulness was also, it seems to me, a man of very real sensitivity. He was a man who felt deeply within himself just what was going on around him. A man who was just so aware of the, the impact that his words, the message he brought, were having. And if you, if you want an example of what I'm saying here, of this combination of courage and faithfulness and deep sensitivity that was, I believe, to be found in Elijah then you need, need look no further than just a couple of chapters on in 1 Kings 19 verse 4. For you see there, at the moment of his greatest triumph, there when God has proved 
in an unquestionable way that he's right behind Elijah as Elijah has just defeated all the prophets of Baal. Well, then suddenly, a threat from Jezebel, a word from this tyrant queen, Elijah caves in, runs away, collapses under a tree in the desert and prays that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. Now, these are maybe words that some of us perhaps have felt at times like saying, but, you know, I don't believe that this particular threat here from Jezebel, terrifying though it must have been, can really totally, fully explain this kind of extreme reaction from a man who just achieved so much and had just known God with him in such a, a powerful way. Now, rather, this threat, I believe, was really just the last straw for Elijah. For throughout his ministry, due to his own sensitivity, he'd felt the impact of this hard message he'd had to bring. And he'd felt the impact of the antagonism and opposition that he'd then had to face, of the loneliness of the faithful servant of God living in the very midst of a sinful world. And now, you see, this threat, this moment, just takes him over the edge. This just proves too much for him to bear. Now here I'd just like to say a word or two in general about sensitivity in the Christian. Do you see sensitivity in a Christian life is one of those qualities which if that is a part of our makeup can be either a very real and wonderful help to us in God's service or it can be just as much a hindrance to us. It's a help if we master our sensitivity and then use it as a tool to feel for, to love, and to care for others. That's fantastic. It's a hindrance, though, if instead we allow our sensitivity to master us. That is, if we allow our feelings for ourselves, which of course are a part of any sensitive person, but if we allow these to dominate us, and so then, because of that, become people who are self-centered, who are self-concerned, who in a word are selfish. So you see, sensitive people are some of the world's greatest carers. But they're also some of the world's greatest mourners. They're some of the world's greatest givers, givers of themselves. But also, they're some of the world's greatest takers, the most demanding people in the world. And for, for many Christians, living the, the Christian life, showing that, that right kind of sensitivity is, is a, a bit, I think, like walking a tightrope, in that they can only do it as they look straight ahead and as they keep their eyes fixed on the Lord, keeping Him and His service as the number one priority in their lives. And by doing that, so keeping themselves and their concerns off that throne of their lives. That's the only way they can do it. But you see, sensitive Christians, like any other tightrope walker, they can be knocked off or they can be blown off their balance. And when that happens, until they get back on that rope, well, that tendency towards selfishness that's in them but normally is kept under control can show itself and dominate for a time. And that in 1 Kings 19, is, I believe, what happened to Elijah. That the pressures of life 
had got him wobbling already. And this threat from Jezebel was just that last little touch that was needed to send him tumbling down. But what I want you to notice now is here God's understanding and care for the sensitive one, the sensitive Christian whose heart's really set on serving him and yet who falls. For in 1 Kings 19, look at it and see. God doesn't run and rave at Elijah because of his failure and his fear. He doesn't tell him that he's let him down. He doesn't accuse him. No, in verse 12, we're told that he speaks to Elijah in that famous, still, small voice of calm, translated in the NIV as a gentle whisper. And you see, moving it back, in 1 Kings 17, I believe, what God is doing as he sends Elijah away at that point to the Kirith Ravine, away there to that place of quietness and calm, what he's doing there, I believe, is he's taking preventative action. For he knows the sensitivity of this man. He knows him. He knows what this first sermon has taken out of him. And he knows how great the pressures will be on him until that that great climax with the prophets of Baal in, in 19, chapter 19. And so here you see, he takes Elijah to the one side. He takes him to this place of solitude to prevent, really, a premature meltdown and to prepare him for the onslaught, the challenge that lies ahead. That's the first practical reason, then, why the Lord removes Elijah from the scene. The sensitivity factor. The second practical reason is, I believe, the safety factor. Now, this, I think, is fairly straightforward. I don't want to labour the point here. But it seems to me that as as well as, as thinking of Elijah's sensitive nature when he removed him, that the Lord was also thinking about his physical safety. Because Elijah had been the one who, in such a dramatic fashion, as we've said, had brought to Ahab, to Jezebel, and to all the people of Israel the news of their judgment from the Lord. Now, as the results of that judgment began to take its toll, as drought and famine and then starvation hit the land, well, the people would begin to look, wouldn't they, for someone upon whom they could pour out their anger and frustration. They'd be looking for someone upon whom they could take their revenge for what they're going through. That's human nature. Now, see, obviously here, God himself was beyond their reach, of course. So his messenger, the one who brought to them the news of this calamity, he would have to do. Now, you might say, that's not logical. Because after all, Elijah was only a messenger. Well, it might not be logical, but what part does logic have to play in the minds of starving men and women? It might not be logical, but in the circumstances, I would say it was natural. And the Lord knew this. And so here he removed Elijah to the safety of Kerith. Now I would say that's something important to, to take note of because I remember my early years as a Christian, whenever, you know, now and again you hear about missionaries being removed from places because there was a threat, and I wondered, well, why are they removing them? Because, you know, if God's with them, he's going to protect them. So why move them? And if 
If he's not going to protect them, well, what happens will be for his glory. I don't believe that. God asks us to use our minds. And God speaks to us here in his word and says, don't stay in dangerous places except by my clear direction to you. But also, as well as these two practical reasons, there was also, I believe, a spiritual reason why the Lord took Elijah to this secluded place. A spiritual reason, which is, is, I think, always true of the truly spiritual, is in fact kind of interwoven within the practical reasons we've just looked at. And this spiritual reason is so that there the Lord could assure Elijah of no matter what, his love, of his care, his protection. Yes, as the Lord hid Elijah in this place of quietness, as a tumult raged all around him, as the Lord fed him by means of these ravens in a natural and yet a glorious supernatural way, he was saying to Elijah, listen, Elijah, no matter what happens in the future, no matter what forces range themselves in opposition against you, no matter what you go through, you will never be outside of the reach of my love, my care, and my protection. For Elijah, remember Kirith. Remember what I did there. And remember, I will sustain you. This then was to be the milestone in Elijah's life. This was to be the focal point that he could return to again and again in his mind throughout his life and say, no matter what, I remember Heareth, and I know the Lord is with me. Now, as Christians, we too, I believe, need to go with Elijah to Kirith. We need maybe a place or places of quietness where we can go and be alone with the Lord. Places we've met him before, be that somewhere in our own home, I don't know, maybe a corner in a church building, wherever it might be. Maybe it's a place, just a place of beauty where we sense the creative glory of God. We need our cured places. And this isn't something that's just Old Testament part of Elijah's ministry, this cured idea. It's something that's very much New Testament also. And it's part of the ministry of Jesus. Because in a number of places in the Gospels, we find Jesus pressed in. We find him with the crowds all around him, their demands and needs incessant. And yet Jesus takes time, right when all this is going on, to withdraw and to go to be alone with the Father, to find his care. Because Jesus knew that this was essential, that if he was going to continue to meet their needs, he needed that renewal. And then in Mark 6.31, we find Jesus realizing that his disciples were becoming too immersed in their work. And because of that, they were becoming harassed and troubled. And so we find Jesus saying to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So we too need our care. We need that place. We need that time where we can go and spend time with the Lord, truly alone, and rest in his presence. That time when we can truly know the love of God, know his touch and refreshing in our life, maybe know the challenge that he brings as he 
points his finger at some area of need, something that needs sorted out. We all need that kind of time on a regular basis where we can meet with the Lord, where we can be quiet and hear him through his word and in prayer. And you know, if we realize just how important this kind of time with the Lord is, then we'll make time for it. We'll make time. For you know, people sometimes say to me, and I say it myself, by the way, I haven't got time for this. I'm too busy. Too many other demands, too many things to do. My reply, with very few exceptions, is that's rubbish. It's nonsense. No matter how busy we are, we can all find time for the things we really want to do, the things that we enjoy, the things that are important to us. I want to say to you, nothing is more important for the Christian than this. But I believe that we don't only need our careth places and times, but that we also need our careth memories. Memories. Now, now what I mean by that is, that as I've said, that Elijah's memories of Kirith must have played a big part in sustaining him through the trials that he was later to go through in life. You see, he could look back to Kirith and he could remember how the Lord had miraculously sustained him there. And so he could hold on then and he could believe that despite his circumstances, no matter what he was going through, no matter how maybe he felt at that moment, that the same Lord could and would carry him through. Now you see, we too, in the same way, we need to seek to remember and to treasure our Kirith's. Maybe one of them was a moment of our conversion. I'm sure it is for most of us. But also other times in our lives. Just those moments when we could see so clearly what God was doing and we, we could know that God was acting to deliver us, that he was with us in a special way, speaking to us in a special way. We need to remember these times so that at those other times in life when we cannot see when we cannot understand those times in life when our circumstances seem to threaten to overwhelm us so that we can then remember and can hold on that God might again carry us through. But you know, there's one very particular key where I think all of this comes together. And that's the special time, the special place, the act above all others of remembrance. I'm sure most of you know what that is. It's that very special care that the Lord's given to his people in the Lord's Supper. It's that time when we can draw apart from the world and be with him in a special way. That time when we can refocus our lives. That time when we can remember that he has delivered us once and for all. For the Lord's Supper is the time when by means of natural elements, the bread and the wine, when we can supernaturally feed upon the Lord. Not that he's in the bread and the wine, not that, but rather that he is present in a wonderful way as we take that bread and wine. That he's there, ready in his grace to empower us, ready in his love to renew and restore us. That supper is the time when, when, we, when as we look upon the bread and wine, representing to us as they do Christ's complete sacrifice for us. But we should then realize that if God was willing to give of himself in this kind of way for us, 
for me and you, if he did that for us, then we are safe forever in his hands. That no matter what might be thrown against us in terms of trial or opposition or even temptation, that nothing can take us from the grasp of a God who loves us so much. The Lord's Supper is supposed to be this kind of milestone for us. It's supposed to be a time at least as special as Kirith was for Elijah. A time when we can look, as we look upon the bread and wine, and remember that God is with me. God is for me. A time when we can know that peace that, that Jesus promised in John 14, when that should be experienced there in the most special way. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Sadly though, for too many of us at times, this isn't what it's experienced at the Lord's Supper, is it? This kind of glorious peace. I think for too many, what we experience is really a sense of emptiness, if indeed not one of, of boredom. It just becomes a ritual. And we just go through it and we're there in body, but our mind and spirit all over the place. Why is this? Why for Christians is their experience of the Lord's Supper so much less, I believe, than it should be? Well, I think it's because of a low expectancy. You see, we've got it in our minds that, that this is simply a ritual that has to be gone through. And we forget or we don't realize, we don't expect to meet with God in living power. And so we don't explore and open our hearts, open our minds, open our spirits to receive of the glories that this table represents. We expect little too often. And because of that, that is what we receive. So anyway, Elijah, first of all, was commanded to go and to hide in Kirith. To go to the quiet place. And that's something that we also must learn to do. To find our Kirith and to spend time there. But then he was commanded to go to Zarephath. To go back then here to Zarephath, to a town, to a community, to go back to the world of men. Now, now practically, that, the reason why I had to do this was because the brook where he'd been getting his water from had, had dried up, and I'll talk a little bit more about that late, later on. But I believe there was much more so a spiritual reason why the Lord wanted Elijah to leave Kirith at this point. And that reason is that although solitude and times of quietness, times alone with the Lord are vitally important for the Christian, yet so too is involvement with the world that the Christian has been sent to minister to. For it would have been all too easy for Elijah to have remained there at Kirith. And perhaps temperamentally, that's what he would have chosen to do. Too easy to have just stayed back from the struggle and tears and problems and heartache of his people as he tried to eke out a living from this parched land of theirs. It would have been too easy. This was the easy way. 
but it is not God's way. It's not because, you see, God's will isn't for his people to minister at arm's length. Rather, he calls his people to enter in and to go and stand right in the midst of those they're called to serve. It's his will is for his people to roll up their sleeves and to get right in there and involved in the suffering and sin and the problems, intensity of what people are going through. God calls his people to get to where the needy people are. And if you want an example of this, the greatest, of course, is none other than Jesus. Jesus, the one who is closer to God than any man. The one who had a, a relationship of intimacy with God beyond the understanding of any man. The one who actually stood in heaven at the right hand of the Father. And yet at the same time, the one of whom John can say at the beginning of his gospel, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The one then who for our sakes was willing to get involved in this sinful world who is ready to come down and to share in the sufferings and sorrows of man, ready to live as a man to the extent that he was willing even to take upon himself those sins of man. As at the cross, he endured the judgment and punishment that was ours. Now you see, as Christians, we too, we need to learn with Elijah to leave Canaan. We need to learn to leave this, this place of safety, of quietness, of fellowship with God, of security. We need to learn to go to Zarephath. We need to learn to go from here and to get involved in ministry to a sinful world as our Lord himself did and commands us to do in his name. Now, of course... There's a need for care and caution here. We always need to make sure that in our involvement with the world that we're ministering to the world and not becoming of the world. We need to make sure that it's we who are changing and transforming those around us by the life of Christ in us rather than us being conformed and absorbed by them and dragged into their world into living by their standards. And we do have to be very honest with ourselves. Because I've known Christians who've said they've been doing various things as ministries, going to various places, because they want to serve Christ in some kind of way. But very soon it becomes clear that they're not actually serving Christ. They're not remaining loyal to Christ, but rather that it's they who are getting dragged into what's going on, on around them. And you see, the truth is that really it wasn't because of Jesus they went there, did that, got involved in that. It was because, really, in the depths of their heart, they were attracted and tempted back into a world of sin. So we need to be really honest with ourselves. We need to be. If we're going to get into a ministry that involves us facing up to real sin and real temptation, we have to be honest. And if that temptation lines up with our weakness... That I believe no matter what opportunities there might be for evangelism and service, it's not for us. It's for another Christian. No matter how we want to get involved, if there's temptation there for us, it's not for us. We need to stand by. 
But in the Christian life then, there needs to be elements of Kira and Zarephath. There need to be times when we draw apart from the world, but this needs to be set in the context of a life of commitment and total involvement in ministry to the world. And whenever we get this balance wrong, in whatever way, then problems begin to appear. We've talked a little bit, though, about what happens when we over-concentrate on our involvement in Zarephath, our ministry to the world. We've talked about that, but, you know, that's always what we talk about in the church, isn't it? That's always what we say. Watch that world, it's a scary place. There is, though, another kind of danger, another kind of overbalance that I believe we ignore at our peril. And that's when we err a bit too much on the curious side. That's when all our time is spent either in our, our devotions in Christian company, or in one way or another, in ministries, worship, etc., that always keep us within the walls of a church building. When evangelism and service, when involvement with the world, are things that we talk about, but never actually do. When we maybe speak about the gospel, perhaps even preach the gospel, but never really seem to get in any meaningful sense into contact with people who actually need the gospel. And there are Christians like that, aren't there? There are churches like that. Those who could quite easily fit within the confines of that, that famous saying of being too heavenly minded to be any earthly use. Have you know, I, I do sometimes wonder if really people in Christians like this, if they really are, heavenly minded or whether to the contrary their apparent concentration on things above rather than the job on hand here on earth isn't instead because they don't want to get down to doing the things that are part of costly dirty hands on ministry and so you see really in the end all of this seeming concentration on the spiritual is actually nothing other than a perverse kind of sinfulness and disobedience. But now, take note of what happened here. Of what it was that forced Elijah to leave Kirith, to leave that place of refreshment and renewal, and go to Zarephath. Verse 7, remember? The brook dried up. The brook dried up. There came a time then when God no longer gave in Kirith that which was necessary to sustain and support life. And you know, in exactly the same way, if we try to stay exclusively at our Kirith, if we try to stay always in that place of safety and security, just seeking always to be refreshed and nourished and renewed. If we keep on that way without ever going out to Zarephath, to a needy world, a needy world to minister and serve, then this, I believe, is what will happen to us. In that if we don't pour ourselves out in service, 
then God will no longer pour in his spiritual life into our lives. And then you see, we can spend all the time we want reading the right books, mixing with the right people, doing the right things, worshipping, praying, reading the Bible. We can do it all. But still, God will not pour any more of his life into us until we learn to pour out, to give out of what we already have. The balance needs to be right in our lives between Kirith and Zarephath, between time being refreshed by God, but also time spent serving and ministering in Christ's name. I say, may God help me and each one of us here to get that right balance in our lives. Let's pray. Father, as we look at the challenge of a passage like that, we're often just aware of maybe the balance not being right. Not right at all, maybe not right in any way. Maybe we need more Kirith. But we know that we're not getting down to that Zarephath, that ministry either. Lord, we pray. Too often we get caught up and we focus on the wrong things. Help us to get our focus right. Help us, first of all, to focus on you. Help us to spend time with you. Help us to draw upon you. Open us up to the ministry of your word and your spirit. Help us in prayer to reach out to you. But Lord, then help us to be ready to get up and go wherever you're asking. Help us to seek and look for ways that we can get alongside people in situations of need in a sinful and needy world. Help us to find ways of taking your love and your life and your power to that where it's needed most. Lord, help us to get that balance in our lives, we pray, for the glory of Christ's name. Amen.